Can't wait for that day. Amen? That is going to be an exciting day. When they talks about standing uh, with a thousand, thousands of generations, singing, holy, holy is the Lord. What a wonderful thought. What a hopeful thought as we enter 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2022. I never thought we'd make it this far, but here we are, and we're going to put 2021 behind us, and we're going to pray, and we're going to hope for better things this coming new year, and trust that um, knowing that because God is faithful, He will be with us every step of the way in 2022. And so we are going to kick off our our new year with our memory verse for this month, for the month of January. It's from the book of 1 Corinthians, so just to give you an idea of where we're at, this is our last Sunday and kind of what we've been doing as a topical series through the holidays. Next week, we begin our series in 1 Corinthians again. We're going to be starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 next week and working through at the beginning of the new year, chapters 14 and 15. Uh, we'll then have our global outreach conference and we will conclude our series in 1 Corinthians right after Global Outreach Conference with chapter 16. And so next week, uh, we'll be back with note guides and back in the book of 1 Corinthians. So let's kind of prepare our minds and hearts a little bit this morning and say the monthly memory verse together. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully Even as I have been fully known, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, makes me think of the uh, song that we just sang this morning. When we're in heaven, uh, singing that hymn, indeed, we will know fully. Well, yesterday for us in the Lenhart home, it was year two of the great Soup Jumu experience. So I think I shared a little bit last year about us uh, trying. Some of you remember that uh, in Haiti, January 1st is their Independence Day. And so we celebrate both the New Year in our home, but we also celebrate uh, the Haitian Independence Day by making what they call Freedom Soup or uh, Soup Jumu. And yesterday, boy, we made a lot of great gains between last year and this year. It was uh, a really, I would call it a success. It was very, very good. Uh, the boys helped and we did a good job and we're very thankful for YouTube videos. Does anyone else use YouTube to help them learn how to do something or like a tutorial? Uh, Sheila followed YouTube videos very, very closely to try to get the authentic flavor and the boys gave it uh, a big thumbs up. And, and I don't know about you all, but I am thankful for technology like YouTube. When I was growing up uh, in the home I grew up in, if there was a DIY project to be done, uh, most likely you're going to have to wait for an episode of This Old House to have that DIY project uh, focused on that particular week so you could actually uh, maybe learn something that you could do in your home. Well, now if you need to change a sink faucet or uh, a leaky valve in your car or something like that, you can Uh, Go to YouTube and type in, how do I fix this in a 2005 Toyota Camry? And poof, there it is. And you can follow step-by-step instructions. Well, you know, it's it's very interesting. We're talking about the Bible today. Shock of all shocks in church service. It's very interesting that God has left us with 
uh, a manual, with a guidebook, with something to help us to understand how we can live, move, and have our being in this world that he has planted us in. And so we may ask the question today, what is the most helpful guide available to instruct us on how to live in this world and form as communities in a way that orients or moves us towards the love of God and the love of others. And we have something far better than YouTube, amen? Amen. Something far better than Google or Facebook or any of those places that you might go to for instruction. We have the living and active and powerful and inspired and inerrant and authoritative and all-sufficient Word of God. And it is a wonderful resource for us. It is the resource that we gather around uh, every single week as we gather for worship. And we do this together as a community on Sunday mornings. We study the word together during the service in community. And it's God's word and his spirit working through his word that is helping to shape us and form us into not just the people that he desires us to be, but the community as well. That he desires for us to be. And so we're going to explore six questions today related to the Bible. And please understand, we are not going to be able to say everything that there is to say related to these six questions today. We're going to be doing a very introductory or broad overview of these six questions. But we are going to look at, at a very basic level, what the Bible is, uh, who wrote the Bible, and maybe some of the names will surprise you. Uh, When the Bible was actually transcribed, where the Bible was written, and maybe you weren't aware of some of the different locations that the Bible was actually written in, how it was formed or brought together into the books or the things that we have on our devices that we're holding today, and why we still use this book today. Thousands of years uh, have come and gone in the church, and we still use this books, uh, this book to grow as individuals and to form as a community. Why? So those are some of the questions we want to explore together as we gather this morning. And we're going to need the Lord's help. It's a big task. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we do thank you indeed for your word. It is such a wonderful life-giving book. It is a beautiful gift that you have given us that reveals to us so many wonderful things about who you are and about who Jesus is and about who the Holy Spirit is. And it teaches us about the ways that we can live in this world and it unpacks for us the complexities and the challenges that we face on a daily basis. And it gives us examples of people in the past who have done things well and people who have not done things well. And uh, there's so much in it. Father, we desire to spend our lives learning about this book and growing in our knowledge of this book that your spirit might work in our time together through it to grow us and change us and move us and transform us that we might know how to live in this world in a way that would be honoring to you and that would be loving to the people that you put us in community with. And so, as we look to learn more about your word today, would you guide us and direct us and help form our thoughts around these six questions that we might answer them in a way that would be helpful today, that we might be able to use your word uh, in the lives of those you bring into our life this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so, what 
is the Bible? And I think that's a fair question. And, and I went online. It's a good place to go. And I was interested to find out what some organizations currently are saying about the Bible. And there's a few organizations out there that are doing some really good, helpful work in relationship to the Bible. One of them is called The Bible Project, if you're unfamiliar with it. It's a great group out there right now that's working through, unpacking, exegeting the Bible on many different levels. They say this. They say, quote, We believe that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. End quote. Simple definition. The International Bible Society says this, quote, The Bible is the account of God's action in the world and his purpose with all creation. End quote. I like to say this uh, in talking about the Bible. And this is uh, Chris Lenhart's definition. At a very simple level, at a, at a level that we can gather around and understand, the Bible is a living and active book that reveals to us the character or nature of God by describing and defining his activity in the world. At its most basic level, this is what the Bible's doing. When we open the Bible, in all of the pages of the Bible, we are learning about how God has described and defined not only his self, but also his activity in the world. And let me give you a few places where this is talked about. In John chapter 5, Verse 39, Jesus says this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, speaking about the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And so Jesus affirmed that the Bible was indeed teaching the people or instructing the people about the character or nature of God. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27 it talks about uh, Jesus' teaching. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, what do you notice about that? That Jesus is teaching from every part of the Bible. Not just the Torah, the books of Moses, but also from the prophets. And he's interpreting for the people that he's teaching all the things the scriptures teach Related to who he was as the Messiah. And then there's this one. And this is where I get the living and active part of the definition that I use to describe the Bible. This is from the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living. How many living books do we hold? Do we know? I only know of one. And it's the word of God. It's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged swords. It's able to... Pierced to the division of soul and spirit. It's able to judge our intents of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so as followers of Jesus, one of our desires is that we want to replicate or embody the same patterns that Jesus practiced while he was on earth. And one of his patterns was using the scriptures, the Bible, because they were life-giving, because they were active, because God does use them and they work. Jesus used the Bible to teach. And so this is quite honestly one of the most simple reasons that we gather around and use the Bible on Sundays, because it's something that Jesus did. We also know this. God is trustworthy. And he has left us with a book that is a clear and accurate representation 
of his character. We also know that it's useful and it's profitable for his creation. And I also think that it's worth pausing here uh, and to briefly remark that there are some topics related to the Bible that are very important that we don't have the time this morning to fully unpack or to dialogue about. But perhaps you would want to spend some more time this week doing some research on your own and looking into them. These are technical terms related to the nature of the Bible that they take time to unpack in Bible colleges and seminaries. We can give a brief synopsis of them this morning, but we won't be able to dive too deeply in them. Uh, So at CNBC, we affirm what is known as the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. That's a big word, verbal plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y, inspiration of the scriptures. And we're not going to unpack that word fully, but what that means is that we believe that the words of the Bible themselves are inspired by God. Not just the ideas or the concepts in the book, but the actual words as they were transmitted or transcribed, those words are inspired by God. We would also affirm at CNBC, the the inerrancy and or infallibility of the scriptures. And again, those are big words, but I'm going to try to simplify them, meaning that on account of God's faithfulness, we believe that in the original autographs or manuscripts, that the scriptures as they were written and given to the authors are without error. And that the scriptures in the original manuscripts are actually incapable of error. And it's a difficult point. This is probably in Bible colleges and seminaries throughout the country. This is a point of contentious for, contention for some of them, not for all of them, but for some because uh, it's not observable or defensible. And the reason is we do not have any of the original autos- autographs or original manuscripts of the Bible. But again, for me... Personally, I I feel that uh, as Christians, we can hold these positions of inerrancy and infallibility on the grounds of God's testimony and his great faithfulness. Because God, we know that God is the author of truth, that he's incapable of any error. And so his word then must also be true and incapable of any error. And so finally, at CNBC, we would also affirm both the sufficiency of the Bible and the authority of the scriptures. And so when you see that word sufficiency, that word sufficiency means that the Bible is sufficient to instruct and inform us in all that is essential and necessary pertaining to the love of God and the love of one another. While the word authority affirms that if the Bible says one thing, So here we have the Bible saying this, and another book out there says another thing, and it opposes the Bible. Which book gets the authority or the authoritative word? The Bible, right. So we say the Bible is authoritative above other books in that it gives instruction uh, that if there is something counter to it, we go with what the Bible says. We live by the Bible's authority. Now, this doesn't mean 
in saying these things that we shouldn't read or study broadly. It doesn't mean that God doesn't gift other authors who are also godly and, and have a great knowledge of the scriptures that can use their giftedness to help inform and instruct us. Uh, it shouldn't necessarily curtail our curiosity or our desire to learn or grow, but rather, I would say for myself, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds me that God's Word is enough to sustain, nurture, and nourish me in this world. How many of you have done that project before, or activity, or campfire discussion, where you've sat around and said, okay, you're on a deserted island, and you can take three things. All right, when I was growing up in Christian summer camps, if you didn't say the Bible, you had to get saved that night at the, at, the, at the service that evening, right? So the Bible had to always be one of those three things. Well, that's good because really it is the book of books, right? And so if I'm on a deserted island and one of the three things I'm taking with me is a book, I'm telling you right now, it's going to be the Bible. I'm taking the Bible with me because it's enough. It's enough to sustain and to nurture and to nourish me in this world. It's the daily bread. God feeds us as we spend time learning, sitting in, and even the, sometimes we struggle with the word meditating, but understand we're not talking about it in an Eastern kind of New Age way. We're talking about it in a scriptural way where we might read the same passage of scripture over and over and over again. And as we do that, God gives us more insight as his spirit works. And so how many of you have read John 3, 16, 50 times, but on the 51st time you see something in there and you're like, wow, I never saw that before. And so there's sufficiency in the Bible. It's enough for us. Authority, though, is also helpful. Because authority reminds me of this, and I do a lot of reading. I like to read broadly. I read a lot of different authors from a lot of different backgrounds and contexts. And so authority reminds me of this. If there is something that somebody says that actually goes against what the Bible says, then the Bible gets the authority. It has the leg up. Its word is more important. And so that allows me to read discerningly. Because there are some things that people have to say that are quite good, but not everything that some people have to say is quite good. So some things we put aside and we say, yeah, but the Bible has this to say, and so the Bible gets the authority on that particular topic that that person might talk about. These words, sufficiency and authority, uh, it also assumes uh, that the Bible is the final arbiter in our lives on what is true. The Bible is the final arbiter in our lives on what is true. That does not mean I am. And so that helps me. I, as a student, as an interpreter, as an avid reader of the Bible, I am not the final arbiter on truth. My interpretation, my understanding, hermeneutic is a big word, my presuppositions or reading patterns may be misinformed. They may be misconstrued, they may be misaligned, but God's word is not. So I can be in error, I don't want to be, but I could be, but God's word is not in error. Human authors and human readers make mistakes. God's book, God's word, does not. He does not make mistakes. So who wrote the Bible? 
Did God write the Bible or did humans write the Bible? Yes. Yes. Right? We can answer that question. It doesn't have to be one or the other. The beautiful, the beautiful reality about the Bible, friends, is that it is both a divine and human document. And I think as we find and as we really lean into that, the beauty of that reality uh, can really begin to take root in our hearts and minds as we read. If, if humans had a part in writing the Bible and human authors make mistakes, how can we say that the Bible then, in its original form, is without error? That's a good question, right? Well, one of the reasons is we can, again, trust in the reliability of the Scriptures to show us that God was involved in the process of writing. So that what, what was wrote, what was written, what was written, written's not a word, don't add it to your dictionary for 2022. What was written was actually written without error. So look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from who? From God, as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. So while this book is, yes, human, for Second Peter would show us the divine character that's all over it. So that what was written, as it was written, was written without error. And it's this beautiful truth related to biblical authorship that begins to emerge as we understand this passage. And I love, this is why I love to read the Bible. This is why we should all love to read the Bible. Because God spoke through human authors in their own cultures and their own times, within their own traditions, surrounded by their own unique audiences. He spoke and his Holy Spirit carried these authors along in a way that allowed them to maintain their own language, their own literary artistry, their own design, their own purpose and occasion for writing, even their own personality and style. And God did this in such a way that he kept, God, through his spirit, kept what was written free from error. But he also kept it both imminent, near to the culture, and transcendent, in that God's word transcends cultures. It's true for every single culture in the world. So if the Bible says to a particular people group in America that this is how things are and this is who God is, then when we go to Africa and we meet with another people group in Africa, we can say with great uh, trustworthiness and, and great confidence that what's true for this people group in America, according to God's word, is also true for this people group in Africa, according to God's word, as it pertains to God and who he is. The Bible's both imminent in that it can be near to us and transcendent in that it transcends culture, space, and time. It leaves us, really, friends, with a supernatural document. There is no other book like the Bible. There is no other book that's alive and active. How many of you like to read? Put your hand up if you like to read. Hey, we have some readers in here. Good. That's good. Reading is good. Maybe make some goals for 2022 for your reading habits. It's good to get in the habit of reading. Um, how many of you have read a book, one book other than the Bible, like you read the Bible? Not me. 
There's no book in my life that's so alive and so active and so transformative and so powerful. I've been moved by books. I could list, I could list up here for you books that have moved me to tears. Books that have moved me to go out and do something or inspired me to change in such a way. But there is no book that has transformed me through the power of the Spirit working as I read and study it than the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Bible. It is the most complete, powerful, transformative book that I have ever read from A to Z. It's able to speak into any culture in the world and it's able to speak into any historical moment on earth. I was joking with Peg this morning. Peg, I hope you don't mind me using it because I thought it was so funny and so relative to our text today. She said, she came in this morning, she said, Pastor Chris, come over here. I have something to show you in the Bible. I said, Peg, if you found the word COVID in there, uh, <laughs> I'm a few years behind. No, but, but you know what she did? She said, I did. She said, it's right here. It's all over Psalm 91. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible is able to speak into any cultural or historical moment. And it does so with power and relevance that's unrivaled in this world. So we might ask, who wrote the Bible? Who wrote it? It's human. It's divine. Obviously, God and the Holy Spirit had a part in it. We have 66 books And of these 66 books, we have around 40 authors, at least 35 who are named and who have played a part in writing the Bible and bringing the Bible uh, to the form that we have today. A large majority of the scriptures can be attributed to five human authors. So if you're taking notes, these five are the ones that the large majority of the scriptures uh, have been written by. You have Moses, you have David, you have Solomon. You have John, who's the disciple of Jesus, and you have Paul. Those five writers compose the largest majority or the largest portion of the scriptures that we have. There are also some portions of the Bible that we don't know the name of the human author or where there's a high degree of biblical academic dispute regarding who the human author of the book actually is. And so some of those books would be Hebrews, about 50 of the Psalms. We're just not sure. Uh, There's a lot of debate over the book of Esther and who authored that, and some of the other books as well. But then there's some authors that you may have never heard of, and these were primarily men who contributed to the Psalms, and the Proverbs. There was a man whose name was Haman, H-E-M-A-M. It's not He-Man. Okay, sorry. All those of you that love the 80s, its name's not He-Man, it's Haman. Okay, so if you see that in Psalms and you're reading, you're like, oh, He-Man wrote one of the Psalms. No, he didn't. His name is Haman. All right. Ethan, Asaph, the sons of Korah, uh, a man named Agur, and another one named Lemuel. And so these are some of the folks that authored or put pen to the Bible as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. When was the Bible written and transcribed or copied down? So conservative biblical scholarship typically views the book of Job as the oldest book of biblical literature, dating it somewhere between 2100 and 1800 years before Jesus was born. Revelation, many scholars consider as the last book of the Bible to be written. Revelation uh, was completed sometime. Now, this is pretty incredible when you think about it. The last book of the Bible 
was completed before 100 A.D. That means it was completed before Jesus had been dead uh, for 100 years even. So it was very near to the life of Jesus. Some scholars say that Revelation was completed as early as 68 A.D. Others say it was probably between 95, 96, 97 A.D., somewhere in that window. So in the Bible, we have literature that God has preserved for his people that spans the course of 1,500 years. It's ancient literature. It's some of the earliest written literature known to humanity that we have. And so it's, it's a very wonderful book. Where, where was it written? The Bible was written across three continents. It was written across, across the continent of Asia, of Europe, and of Africa. Now, I know this is small, and many of you that are with us online today won't be able to see the details, and maybe even some of you in here won't be able to see the details, but the map on the screen this morning kind of shows you different locations where it was the, uh, believed that different books of the Bible uh, had been written. Now, there's some interesting realities that come along with this. The fact that the Bible was written across three continents. Because it was written across three different continents, it shouldn't surprise us that the literature of the Bible was originally written in three different languages. The two predominant languages are Hebrew and Greek. Those are the original. But a third language, Aramaic, is also in the Bible. These are ancient languages. Which means that no, no three of those languages, so none of those three, Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, are still spoken in the form that they were spoken back when the Bible was written. Alright, so if you were to go to the country of Greece today, and you were to speak to them in Koine Greek, that would be like walking around here speaking in the King James Version of the Bible. No one talks like that anymore. It's, it's ancient. It's an ancient dialect, an ancient form. And these languages, they also pose some unique challenges to the earliest scribes and translators of the Bible. For instance, and you may not have known this, vowels in the Hebrew language were not added until the 5th century A.D. Now think about that. Think about the English language without vowels. I can't. <laughs> I don't know if any of you can. You'd be pretty gifted if you could. But the vowel pointings for the Hebrew words were not added to the Hebrew language until the 5th century A.D. And they were added by a group of people known as the Masoretes. So if you want to look the Masoretes up, you can look them up and you can see the work they did in adding the vowel pointings to the Hebrew letters. So the oldest Hebrew manuscripts that we have do not contain vowel pointings. And so when you look at some of these ancient documents and ancient translations, not only do some of them not have vowel pointing, but in the Greek language, they often didn't put any spaces between words or paragraphs. Imagine if I wrote to you an email, and in the email, I did not put a space between any of the words, or a paragraph division, or anything else, and I didn't use vowels. How would you do with that email? You might be pretty upset, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's the challenge that some of our uh, earliest uh, translators had 
with the Bible. They had to figure out, where are the spacing between these words? Uh, Why is there no vowels in the Hebrew? What does this mean? How do we delineate this and figure this all out? So it's interesting. This challenge... Really, one of, these, one of the ways that we can see this is in a book that's known as the Septuagint. And I'll explain that here. Uh, it emerged about 300 years before, 300 years before the birth of Jesus. And the challenge was that there were a lot of non-Jewish people who were alive that were unable to read or comprehend the Old Testament scriptures in their language, because at the time, the Old Testament was only written in Hebrew. Well, Hebrew was not the common language that was spoken in the Roman Empire. It was this Koine Greek. And so, 300 years before the birth of Jesus, in order for people who were not Jewish and did not speak Hebrew, in order for them to be able to read the Bible in their own language, it had to be translated from the Hebrew to the Greek. And so, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was the translation that would have been used at the time that Jesus was alive. They would have been using a Greek translation of the Jewish Hebrew Old Testament. And I have a Septuagint in my office. It's really big, and unless you know Greek, you really can't read it. But if you ever want to come back and take a look at it, you're welcome to. I'd show it to you if you want to. Uh, But the development of Septuagint would allow the earliest Gentile Christians to have a translation of the Old Testament scriptures in Greek so that they could read and understand the Bible in their own language. Now, I want you to think about the amazingness of this because this is, this is an another incredible testimony of God's superintendence over salvation and over the preservation and dissemination of the Bible among his people. God, in his perfect knowledge, had already prepared a way for his word to be rapidly spread throughout the most powerful and influential empire known to the world at the time, the Roman Empire. The reason that the Bible was able to be so quickly disseminated and spread after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is that there was a form of the Old Testament that was already translated into the Greek and could be shared among the people. It's beautiful. And eventually what happened was the Septuagint was translated into what was the next common language of the people known as, anybody know what the next common language was after Greek? Anybody know? Anybody want to take a guess? Starts with an L, Latin. Yeah. So the Septuagint or the Greek New Testament was eventually translated into what we know as the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. And if you love the Bible and you love the history of the translation of it, The Latin Vulgate Bible was the version which John Wycliffe used. I don't know if you knew that. We support a lot of missionaries, uh, global partners that are through Wycliffe. John Wycliffe used the Latin Vulgate Bible to translate the first English Bible. The first English Bible was translated in 1382. You're taking notes. 1382 is when we received our first English Bible. And so, in some forms, the translation of the Bible literally went from Hebrew and Aramaic into a Greek Septuagint, into a Latin Vulgate, into the English versions. And they're not the English versions we have today because we don't speak like they spoke in English back in 1382 anymore. And so, literally, uh, we hold today 
uh, translations of translations of translations. It's very interesting. Modern scholarship uh, has, has thankfully uh, made the original languages more accessible to us, and that's allowed us to eliminate that the need for the Latin translation. And so in a lot of our translations today, we don't go back and look at the Latin Vulgate anymore. And so when you have all of these authors and all of these languages that span all of this time and space, how did we end up with the 66 books of the Bible that we have today? 39 in the old, 27 in the new. How did we end up with those books. And the technical term, which again, we don't have much time to dive deeply into it today, the technical term that's used here that you can look up maybe a little bit on your own this week is a term called canonization, the canonization of the scriptures. And there's much ancient literature related to the work of God and the people of God that's not included in the 66 books that we have. Some of these books are even included in the Latin Vulgate translations of the Bible that we've discussed earlier. Uh, some of you know these books as the apocryphal books or the pseudepigraphal books. So when I was growing up as a young boy, uh, occasionally we would go and visit my grandparents' church in the city. They went to a, a kind of a high Lutheran church. And I noticed something very different in the pews of the, the Bible pews of my grandma's church. There were books that our church's Bibles didn't have in them. And I was wondering, well, what's up with this? Well, and some of you know that, that the Catholic Bible has more books than the English Bible has. And these are the lists of some of the non-canonical books. And so the books in this list are books over the years that were uh, determined to have a historical inaccuracy in it or some kind of inaccuracy or misrepresentation of Jesus's life or ministry or something that happened that were not finally included in what we have as our canon of 66 books today. So who or how was it determined which books would be included or which books would be left out? That's a good question, isn't it? When we have all these books before us, who determined what would be included or what might be left out? So early on uh, in the formation of the church, the Apostle Paul Use the scriptures to give insight to, to inform, and to instruct how the earliest churches should be forming around life-giving and healthy patterns. And so Paul uses both the Old Testament teachings, uh, but he also uses Jesus' instructions when he's talking to the early church. And outside of the Bible itself, we find writers like Josephus and Irenaeus and Clement and Origen and Tertullian referencing many of the New Testament books that we use today. And many of them recognize all four Gospels, Acts, 1 Peter, 1 John, the 13 letters of Paul, the Revelation as authoritative very, very early on, friends. In 367 AD, there was a man whose name was Athanasius. He was the bishop of Alexandria. And he wrote a letter. And in this letter, this is 367 AD, he referenced all 27 books of the New Testament. And it's these 27 books that are still being used in our churches today. So Jerome and Augustine, early church fathers, they would later use this same list. And it would become commonly, but not yet formally, so commonly but not formally, it was accepted that this list of 27 books was recognized as authoritative and canonical to the early church leaders. And this carried us all the way up, and you want to write this date down, 
to about 397 AD. And this is an important date. This is the, the most commonly held date uh, where at the Council of Carthage, early church fathers came together to address several concerns that were facing the church. One of them was what books were going to be recognized as authoritative or as canonical. And so at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD, it was formally recognized and accepted that the books, the 27 books of the New Testament would be the canonical books that we are still using today in our churches. It's largely recognized among Protestant biblical scholars that from this date forward, the canon of the scriptures is to be considered as complete, which means we don't add books to it anymore. The canon is complete. And again, I, I do think it's important to clarify that canonization did not determine which books to include and not to include. We don't want to say it that way. Rather, the Council of Carthage looked at the authoritative influence of the books of the Bible that were already being used throughout the early church and said these are the books that have already been recognized as authoritative for forming the church. So taking this into account, the council actually developed at least four standards. Some say there was as many as eight. Some say six. Um, there could have been more. Four standards uh, that a New Testament book had to meet in order to be considered as canon. First, was it written by an apostle? If it was not written by an apostle, it had to go through a whole number of other levels of, of test before it would have been accepted. Second, was it universally accepted among all the established faith communities that were surrounding the Mediterranean region? Was it already seen as authoritative and being used that way? Third, was it commonly or regularly used by the early church leaders in their churches? And fourth, was its message consistent within itself and consistent within the broader scope of historically accepted Christian teaching? And so when we look back through the corridor of all these matters, canonization, translation, authority, inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration, authorship, uh, I like to land on some following conclusions that govern my approach to the Bible. And this is your pastor personally speaking this morning, conclusions that I land on as I approach the scriptures. The Bibles that we hold in our hands, whether on physical pages or on handheld devices, are accurate, reliable, and trustworthy representations of the original autographs. I come to the scriptures with that in mind. There is no book, too, there's no book in human history, none, that has undergone more scrutiny or more criticism than the Bible. You won't find another that comes anywhere close. And by and large, repeatedly, the Bible has stood up to the scrutiny and criticism that it has faced and proven itself to be historically reliable and accurate in what it teaches. And so a lot of people like to talk about trying to defend the scriptures. I found over the course of, of my ministry career, it, the very real, real truth, the Bible defends itself. It defends its accuracy and reliability. Three, God loves us. He desires for us to know him. He's faithful and true. And he would not leave us without an accurate and definitive tool through which he could reveal himself to us. The Bible is that tool for us today. 
Fourth, the message of the Bible is universal and absolute. Its truth transcends time, culture, or any other obstacles that may be present. Fifth, if there is a discrepancy or an apparent contradiction or error, the problem is likely with me. With me, not with the Bible. It's with me and my understanding or my interpretation. My own fallibility and my own imperfections are part of my inability to rightly understand and correctly interpret the scriptures as they were intended to be. So if I see something that may be in an error or an apparent contradiction, I don't blame the Bible. I don't say, see, look, see, look, right there it is. No, something's wrong with my understanding, with my interpretation. Something in me needs to change. Finally, I am okay, friends. When I approach the scriptures, I am okay with saying, I do not know that answer yet. I do not know yet. Friends, we would be in such a healthier place as a faith community in the world today if we could just all admit to one another that we do not fully know yet. Yet. It's what our memory verse for this month communicates at the beginning of the service. Sometimes I have to say, I've not fully formed my thinking around this topic yet. I may never know this as I should here on earth. My knowledge is not perfect in this area. I simply don't have a full picture of it. I could be wrong, but here is how I'm understanding or seeing this today. I'm a lifelong learner of the scriptures. I'm growing. I want to be growing every single day. So why do we still use the Bible today? Here we are seated as a faith community, we might form this question in a different way. We might say, is the Bible still relevant for today? I would hope we would all answer that question with the resounding, yes. Yes, absolutely. Though there are some that look around us and see things like COVID-19 and masks and vaccinations and political issues and maybe modern militarization and technolog technological advancements and computers and the internet. Twitter, Twitter, whatever, social media, Teslas, and Teslas, sorry, I don't hear me, space travel, and we may say, what does the Bible have to say about all these things? How is it still relevant? Well, it's incredibly relevant. It's incredibly life-giving on all of these matters, and here are five thoughts that may help us respond to this inquiry. One, we still use the Bible today because it is the word of God which endures forever. It's what the Bible is. God transcends time. He has a perfect knowledge of all of human history. Beginning, middle, and end. So he can communicate to us in a way that transcends or goes beyond the specifics of our current cultural context. The enduring and preserving quality of the word is communicated in both the Old and New Testament. Isaiah 40. We have it right up here on the front. Of the lectern, if the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God stands forever. First Peter 1 Peter 1.25, but the Lord, word of the Lord remains forever. And his word is the good news that was preached for you. His word endures forever. That's one reason it's still relevant today. Two, we use the Bible today because it is the word of God that gives us hope, comfort, and it is a guiding light for learning 
how to live in this world. Now, if you're taking notes, don't get frustrated. I'm going to flip forward, but this will come right back up again in a second. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for what? Our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of what? The scriptures, the Bible. We might have hope. We need some hope today, amen? We need some hope. Well, guess where we find it? In God's word. It's there. It's full of hope, life-giving hope. I thought it was so beautiful this morning, just the way God works. Uh, right after I was done my workout this morning, I went on to my devotional uh, app. I use an app on my phone for my morning devotions. And uh, the scripture that I had to read this morning was Psalm 119. Hi. What's Psalm 119 all about? God's word. It was amazing. I didn't plan it that way. I didn't work that out. That was the Lord. Uh, Psalm 119, my devotion today. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Isn't that wonderful? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There's hope. There's comfort. There's light. Direction for us in God's word. Why else is it relevant? We use the Bible today because from it, uh, it's the seed that God uses to call forth life and produce fruit in the lives of those who receive it and live by it. When we receive it and we live by the word, God produces fruit in our lives. Isn't that beautiful? Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes out from all my mouth. It should not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the parable of the sower in the gospel of Luke, it is the seed. You remember the seed that the sower tosses in the ground? The seed is the word of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work, at work. It's not, it's, it's living, it's active, it's not dead. It's at work among you believers, among us. Four, we use the Bible today because it helps us to form and to gather as life-giving communities that honor God and love one another. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We all know this one very well, probably. All scriptures breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everywhere in the Bible we see God's breath. We also see what? Does anybody know? What comes with God's breath? Life. Life. God's breath and life are always connected. We talked about that a little bit last week. So in the Bible, we have words that are given to us from God, about God. Words that are useful to teach one another, which is a primary function of discipleship. Words that are useful for reproof, which means to warn us or to stop us from behaviors that are dishonoring uh, to God. Words that are profitable to correct, which is another way to say redirect us towards patterns or postures which are more God-honoring and life-giving. And words that can be used to train us in rightly relating to God and one another in this world. 
How do we learn how to relate to one another? How do we learn how to relate to God in the Bible? So when used rightly then, the Spirit works through the Word to make the people of God mature or whole and prepared or equipped for the good work that God directs into our past. When viewed in this light, the Bible then becomes a wonderfully relevant and life-giving gift of literature breathed out by God for His glory and for the good of His people. So finally, uh, we use the Bible today because it's the book that Jesus and His earliest followers used to guide, instruct, and form the church. Friends, we use the Bible because Jesus used the Bible. He quoted from the Old Testament to rebuke Satan in the wilderness. He used the Torah to establish and supply the great command that he would give the church. He quoted it from the book of Deuteronomy. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus reads directly from the Isaiah scrolls when he's teaching. He used the prophetic literature of the Old Testament as a backdrop for some of his parables. We especially see this in his use of Isaiah 6 in the parable of the sower. He talks about Jonah the prophet when he's describing his death. He quotes from the Psalms when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. He uses the Bible to comfort and to console his disciples as he draws near to death. He quotes to them from the Old Testament scriptures and Psalms. He quoted the scriptures while on the cross. Did you know that? While on the cross, Jesus, with the last breath that he had left, he quoted from the scriptures. In his lifetime, while on earth, Jesus quoted or directly taught from each of the three major divisions of the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the law, and the prophets or the writings. He used all of them. And this demonstrates that Jesus saw every part of the Old Testament as relevant to his time and space and our time and space here on earth. 